0: Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us From the book of Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul is in prison and is writing to his followers in Philippi about what it means to live the Christian life. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. If then there is any encouragement in Christ Any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in absence, work out your own salvation with fear, And trembling for it is God who is at work in you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure the word of the Lord
1: for those of you who are new to the Presbyterian tradition or to church maybe we have a thing called the lectionary which is a calendar Three year calendar that exposes us to almost every passage in the Bible. So, over a course of three or four years, you get an exposure to all the words of our Holy Scriptures. Today is a passage I would not have chosen if it were not in the lectionary. I've been in ministry for 22 years. I have never preached on this text. I tell you that not as an apology or a precursor, just as an observation um, that sometimes the Word of God is not easy to hear. And maybe then it's most important to hear. So listen now for God's word to me, to you, to all of us. 21st chapter of Matthew, verses 23 through 32. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same. And he answered, oh, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to the kingdom, going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For God, John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. The religious... The religious leadership are laying a trap for Jesus. They are not happy with him after he overturns some tables in their temple and question their leadership in front of all the people. The religious leaders, that is to say the, the seminary professors, the clergy, and the lay leadership, they're angry because Jesus has spoken out and acted out on their home turf without an authority that they have given him. So when they approach Jesus and ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? They are driven to ask the question by animosity, not curiosity. They are trying to force Jesus into making a statement that will either incriminate him politically with Rome or discredit him religiously with the people. They are forcing his hand and Jesus will have none of it. He sees the trap for what it really is, a diversion from the real question at hand. A few years ago, Pope Francis chose an interesting metaphor to describe the church. He chose the metaphor of a field hospital to describe his ideal incarnation of the church. The thing the church needs most today, said Francis, is the ability to heal wounds and warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness and proximity. I see the church, he writes, as a field hospital after battle. It is useless to ask a seriously injured person if he has high cholesterol or to talk about the level of his blood sugars. You have to heal his wounds. Then we can talk about everything else. Heal the wounds, heal the wounds. And you have to start from the ground up. A field hospital is mobile, more an event than an institution. Rather than defending its structures or its territory, it goes outside of itself in search of the emergency, looking for the one in need. Pope Francis goes on to say, I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it's been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. I do not want a church concerned with being at the center, which then ends up being caught up in a web of obsessions and procedures. When Jesus turns the tables on the religious leadership by asking them from where they think John's authority is coming from, he is forcing them to make a choice they don't want to have to make. If they answer his question, they will either upset the crowds who believe in John or give credence to the ministry of John and by default, the ministry of Jesus. And neither of those choices allows them to keep their power and their authority. They have really good theology, they have sound biblical understanding, and they have really good policies and procedures. But what they lack is the courage of their convictions. They are unwilling to say or do anything that threatens their influence or their power. So they answer Jesus with a strategic, we don't know. And since they will not answer his question, he will not answer theirs. Instead, he does what he loves to do, he tells a story. There once was a vineyard owner with two sons. One day the father asked his two boys to go to work in the vineyard. The first one is reluctant, petulant even. I don't want to do the work, he responds. You can hear the whining in his voice. But then this reluctant son, this wayward child, changes their mind. The Greek word here used to describe this change is elomahi, to change one's mind with some level of regret. The reluctant child, the reluctant worker, feels remorse about opposing his father's wishes, and he goes to work. When the second son is asked to go to work in the vineyard, he gives a more appropriate response to his father. "'Sir, I will go,' he says. But we learn rather quickly that he's all talk and no action. The story ends, and Jesus asks, "'Which of the two did the will of his father?' and the religious leadership that they can't hide anymore. The first, they reply. Now, the two sons in this parable are often seen as the two sides of the people of God, both then and now. On the one side are the religious, the most religious, the pastors, the preachers, the teachers, the Bible study leaders, and the lay leadership, the people who look the part of a disciple. I mean, I have a robe and a stole. I look good. I look like I know what I'm doing. But when given the opportunity to get to work, to go to work in the vineyard, in the world, they resist doing God's will. On the other side, there are the great unwashed, as some call them, the pagans, the Christian Christmas and Easter Christians, the masses of people who do not look the part of the disciple. And yet when they are given an opportunity to serve, after initial hesitation... They get to work doing what God commands them to do, the work of justice, mercy, kindness, and peace, the work of the vineyard. The story, I think, leads us to a really important question that begs an answer. Why? Why would the most religious be the least willing to accept the authority of Jesus? It's a tough question. It's a question that has haunted the church for 2,000 years. Despite all the good done by people of faith over the centuries, the leaders of the church have often been the most resistant to renewal and reform and the most strident in protecting their power. Why do the most religious almost always seem to be the least willing to accept the authority of Jesus? The answer I keep coming back to from personal experience and from the witness of Scripture is that most religion over time becomes tribal and not transformative. Instead of leading us on a path of transformation, of wholeness, of change, most religion over time gives us instead a sense of identity that is reinforced in comparison to them, whoever they are might be most religion over time becomes tribal not transformative if there is indeed one god then it is this one god who is breaking through in every age and time and monotheists should be the first to recognize that capital t truth is one and that god is as paul says all in all yet instead most religious people myself included Resist the idea that truth can come to us in different ways from unexpected places and from people we did not expect. And we fear this truth that comes to us. We resist it when it comes to us because it calls us to a new way of being, a way that disrupts our power and our privilege. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though had equality with God, did not regard that equality as something to be exploited. When the religious of Jesus' time were encountered by the truth, first in John and then in Jesus, they opposed it, I believe, because it required them to make changes. Changes in their rules of admittance, changes in their religious practices, changes in their understanding of their own power and place in the system. I wonder if... The most religious people struggle to accept the authority of Jesus because they have the most to lose by it. Here's the thing. In my opinion, whenever the commands of Jesus, whenever his teachings bump up against our desire to protect and preserve something we deeply cherish, especially something that holds up our authority and our place, our identity, we need to pause and consider, prayerfully consider, why? Why are we so threatened by Jesus' call to action? We need to ask ourselves, why are we resisting this particular invitation from Jesus to work in God's vineyard? There is no greater authority in a Christian's life than the words of Jesus. And while at times good people of faith will disagree, have disagreed, will continue to disagree on the interpretation and the application of his words, to be Christ's disciples is to cede authority to him. To follow Jesus means letting go of the practices and traditions that prevent us from embracing the present work to which we are called. A number of years ago, Reverend John Philip Newell was preaching at St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh. Standing in the pulpit that hugs one of the thousand-year-old massive pillars of the church, Reverend Newell began his sermon by listing all the things that one day would be no more. There will be a time, he said, when this building will be no more. There will be a time when our scriptures will be no more. And there will be a time when Christianity will be no more. At this point, a woman in the congregation yelled at the top of her lungs, heresy! This, of course, woke everybody up and they actually started listening to the sermon, they whispered to each other, What did he say? What did he say? I missed it. The woman, seated in one of those cathedral box pews with the doors, after yelling, she stood up, opened the little door at the end of her pew, and slammed it shut, and stomped down the center aisle in her hard-heeled shoes, shouting one more time before she walked out the door, Heresy! Reflecting on this experience, Reverend Newell commented. He said, there's this tendency in the West to absolutize our religion. Instead of viewing it as a road sign that points beyond itself, we consider a stop sign. It becomes the destination, the end. And when that happens, our religion and its practices become confused with the ultimate reality that is always beyond utterance, beyond embodiment, beyond form. He then asked a great question. How can we both cherish our religious inheritance, its symbols and sacraments, and at the same time, let it go? How would our experience of church be different if church was more about a path and progress and less about programs and perpetuity? I'm asking this difficult question because most of us here, myself included, identify a lot more with the religious leaders in today's passage who say the right thing but don't do enough than we do the tax collectors and the prostitutes who, when they encounter the authority of Jesus, are willing to change the direction of their lives completely. The essence of the Christian life is to follow Jesus. It is to give him authority over all things, our politics, our beliefs, our schedule, our money, our relationships, even our religion. He is clear, the tax collectors and the prostitutes who are willing to change their minds and get their hands dirty working in the vineyard, they are going to get into the kingdom of heaven first because their belief in Jesus spurred them into unfamiliar action. I'm sure their lives did not turn around instantly. No one's life ever does. This is not a story, a lesson about a radical conversion from a bad person to a good person. I am sure, I have three kids, I am absolutely sure the son who was reluctant and then decided to get to work was also reluctant the next time he was asked. I guarantee that happened. He was not perfect, no one ever is, But he did acknowledge by his actions who had authority over his life the reverend marvin a mckickle the 12th president of colgate rochester crozier divinity school in rochester new york loved to tell about his fear of roller coasters as a young boy in chicago marvin's older brother continually harassed him for being too afraid to ride the ups and the downs of even the smallest of roller coasters at nearby Riverview Park. After years of harassment, Marvin finally relented and agreed to ride the park's greatest coaster, the Fireball. What a perfect name. Back then, way back then, it was free, imagine this, free to enter an amusement park. Instead of buying a gate pass that cost you a week's worth of wages, you had to pay as you go, which posed a problem for young Marvin McNichol. Because between the entrance of the park and the fireball were countless distractions. There were games of chance and skill. There was a hall of mirrors and a woman who had three arms. There were stalls that sold food and candy, and your fortune. There were so many distractions that by the time Marvin arrived to the fireball, he had no money left. And he was forced to watch as others had the ride of their lives. The essence of the Christian life is following Jesus, doing what you see him doing, treating others as you see him treating people trying to have as paul says the same mind and attitude that was in christ jesus this is the ride to which we are called and make no mistake about it when it's not oversimplified discipleship is an enormous life-altering undertaking not only does following jesus take prayerful deliberation particularly when situations are complex and vary greatly from those portrayed in the Gospels, but it also requires a daily recalibrating, reorienting of our passions and priorities. Following Jesus demands the ability, the strange ability, to hold on to what we cherish while being willing to let it all go if that's what it takes to follow him into the vineyard. Perhaps this is why the first Christians weren't called Christians. They were called the people of the way. They knew they were establishing a community governed by a different perception of God and a correspondingly new ethic. And they knew such a life was not a spiritual sprint, but instead a long-haul journey where actions spoke louder than words. Where in your life... Are you resisting the call to do the uncomfortable yet meaningful work of the faith? What are you holding on to that gives you power and authority that you're unwilling to let go of? What are you protecting to avoid the transformation Christ envisions for you and for the world? What distractions are keeping you from the ride of your life? Christ is calling us. He is always calling us. He is calling us to join him in the messy and glorious calling of working in his vineyard, serving in the world God so loves. Amen.